This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. Whether you're in person or online, we're thrilled that you are here today. Today we're going to kick off a short little uh, two-week message series called Love and Marriage. And so uh, if you're not aware, next Sunday's Valentine's Day, so... Uh, you have a full week to completely forget about it until next Saturday, right? And then, then hurry out to tell your wife of like, I got to get gas. I'll be back. Uh, right? And, and then, then you go do all of that. So um, if you are not currently married, dating, engaged, please don't check out on me. Uh, today, we'll talk about marriage next Sunday. That'll, that'll be good for you, whatever situation you're in. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about how love, uh, the love that Jesus gives to us is the foundation of every healthy relationship. And we'll spend some time, especially at the end, talking about how that affects the relationships between men and women, especially, and, and God comes not just to bring husbands and wives together, but to bring all of us into normal, healthy, thriving, loving relationships. Um, but that's going to be the next two weeks. Two weeks from today, we're going to start a new series called The Lazarus Life. So we're going to start that on February 21st. I'm really excited about that. Uh, all the way back in November of 2019, we were in a series called Unimpressed. And we, I preached from the Lazarus story about how Jesus is not impressed with our death. And as I studied through that that week, I saw there were five, six, seven more messages that could be preached. And, and think I even made the statement at the time of, hey, at some point, we're going to come back to this. Uh, last spring, I had an opportunity to go preach in chapel over at, at Oral Roberts University and felt like God led me back again to that passage. And so in that process of studying, it was like, oh, there's, a, there's another five or six messages. And so we're going to spend the next, uh, starting February 21st, 12, 13, 16, 18, something like that weeks, uh, just walking our way through the story of Lazarus. Because here's the thing, the story of, the, of Lazarus is the story of the gospel. It's the story of my life. It's the story of your life. In the Lazarus story, we're going to see that, that God cares about us when we're hurting. We're going to ask questions like, why doesn't Jesus always do what I want him to do when I want him to do it? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do followers of Jesus get sick? Why do people not always respond to the miracles of Jesus in the way that we expect them to? And, and so we'll just kind of walk through those things. We'll have a couple guest speakers in the middle uh, who, who will kind of break it up for us. But we're just going to plow through that from February all the way through. It's going to be a great time for you to, uh, to bring your friends, your family, your neighbors, and just let them hear about the, the life change that Jesus brings. Next Sunday is also a good time to invite someone. Marriage Sunday. Uh, so, you know, all that, that coworker, that friend, that family member that complains about their spouse all the time to you and you're tired of it. Um, next week is your chance to be like, hey, you should come to church with me. I don't really know what we're talking about, but... Uh, I just, I just think it'd be a good, I'll buy your lunch, uh, whatever it takes, right? Just get them here, we'll, we'll lay it out, it'll be good for us. But today, um, I just want you to know I'm maturing, right? <laughs> it, might not, it might not be obvious all the time, uh, but I am. I grew up in Kansas, okay? So um, now I've lived in Oklahoma almost as long, we're getting close, the next five or six years I've lived in Oklahoma longer than I lived in Kansas, but there are a few things that have held tight from Kansas, Okay. I still love pheasant hunting. I still love the Kansas Jayhawks basketball team, even though it's a tough year. And I have an undying love for the Kansas City Chiefs. Right? So now I know that's not why you're here today. I mean, I, like, don't call me a bandwagon fan. I go back. Steve DeBerg made me cry in fourth grade. 
Okay, and most of you have no idea who that is, but just Google it, right? He might be so old he doesn't even show up. But anyways, so there was a, a great temptation this morning to completely and totally rip the scriptures out of context and make them say what I wanted to. Because 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, he will give you a crown of glory. Patrick Mahomes, let's go, Travis Kelt, I mean all, right, like that, so, so. But I heard the voice of the Spirit say, you dummy, that is not what that means. And so instead of that, we're going to put that to the side, right, we're going to put that to the side, and we are going to jump into what the Scriptures teach us about actually loving each other. So if you have a Bible, instead of 1 Peter chapter 5, which is still a fine prayer for you to pray this afternoon, uh, especially around 5.30 to 8.30, that would be a good time. Uh, John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this command from Jesus comes at the Last Supper. It's part of his farewell teaching. The disciples don't know what's about to happen. They don't know the love of Christ that's about to be displayed for them, but Jesus does. And, and so these two short verses are his last words to them, some of his last words to them, and are, are worthy of our attention this morning. So if we're thinking about what does it mean to love each other, this is a wonderful place to start. And I want you to notice a, a few things as we work through here. First of all, Jesus says, a new command I give you. So what Jesus is saying here is not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's not a, hey, guys, if it's not inconvenient, could you maybe? All right, some of you, you're, you're experts at sending those um, commands and directives at work couched in really passive language. Like, hey, you know, if it's not too much for you, I'd really appreciate it if you could get this done to me. And I was just circling back to see if maybe possibly you had finished the project that it's your job to finish. Uh, you know, and, and so we like we're, we're so afraid to offend people that sometimes we won't be very direct. Now, the, the way that, that that doesn't necessarily work as a parent to a child. Most parents understand direct communication. Right. And, and, and I, I mean, there's little phrases we have in our house of I'm not starting a conversation. I'm giving a command. Right. So I told you what to do. And my expectation is not to talk about it. It's to watch you do it. Right. So let's go. This is what Jesus, a new command I give. And, and here's the other thing I want you to hear to you. The command to love each other. It's easy to take that and think, yeah, you know what? These people should be more loving. Those people should be more loving. They should do that. That would be a good job. But before we worry about they, we got to worry about me. And so the disciples are intended to hear this as a personal command from Jesus to them. And you and I, as we read it, must hear it as a personal command from Jesus to us. To love one another is not an option. It's not an add-on. It's not a, if you feel like it, if you think it's possible, if it's not too inconvenient. It is a clear, simple, straightforward, if you are my disciple, you will love each other. Right? And, and, and so then he tells us, you're going to love each other as I have loved you. So he then tells us, Jesus is the standard of love. When it comes to my relationship with you, I'm not going to measure my success by the standards of culture or the world. Because we can always look around and find someone who's doing a worse job than us, right? 
I'm like, well, I'm not a murderer. You know, I, I didn't steal from my employer. I don't beat my wife or kids. I guess I must be a pretty good, pretty good guy. That's not it. We're not looking for the lowest possible bar that we can jump over to call ourselves loving people. Jesus says, it's a new command I give you. You will love one another as I have loved you. And so the disciples, they're, they're on the verge of seeing what the love of Jesus looks like. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be crucified. Then they're going to witness the resurrection. Then they're going to witness the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then they're going to witness this love of Jesus that is supernatural and transformational. So when Jesus says, you're going to love each other as I have loved you, he's saying, you're going to love each other with a transformational love. You're going to love each other with a sacrificial love. You're going to love with such a strong one-way love towards each other that it becomes a two-way reciprocal kind of love. When we, uh, when we dedicate kids at Christian Chapel, babies, uh, we always give the parents a, a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. So if, if you're a, a new believer or if maybe reading the Bible has never really made sense to you, I would encourage you, uh, get online, go to Mardell, go wherever, buy a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's just a very simple, kind of tells the whole story of the scriptures in a really condensed uh, way. It's, it's a great one. Like when our kids were little, it's the one Angie and I would read to them every night before they would go to bed. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the lady who, who wrote it, and, and she describes the love of God over and over again in the book in such a, such a wonderful way. So if we're sitting here this morning thinking, but Jesus says love as he's loved us, but what does that actually look like? Just listen to this description from the Jesus Storybook Bible. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking always and forever love. This is the love that we are supposed to have for one another. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. It's not conditional. It doesn't depend on you doing the right thing, saying the right things, or being the right person. It's you have been brought into Christ. I have been brought into Christ. Therefore, we are brothers. We are sisters. I will love you. Jesus says, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love for one another rooted in the love of Christ is supposed to be the defining characteristic of a disciple. More than anything else. Right? I had a friend a couple weeks ago who was telling me when he was in high school, his, his buddy had a t-shirt that said, they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts. Right? <laughs> And it's dumb, and, and we want to wear that, and, and yet, if we're honest, we have a lot of other things that we could fill in. They will know we are Christians by who we hang out with. They will know we are Christians by how we choose to educate our children. They will know we are Christians by our voting record. They will know we are Christians by the words we say, but more importantly, by the words we don't say. They will know we are Christians by the music we do or don't listen to. They will know we are Christians by these choices or those choices. Now, I'm not saying those things don't matter. All of those are important things that the Christian should thoughtfully and carefully consider. But what Jesus wants us to know is our primary witness to the world is not our political affiliation. It's not if we homeschool, private school, public school, or no school. It's if we love each other. They're supposed to be, right? They're, they're supposed to be a warmth 
an embrace among Christians. This is why the, the early church grew so much. You can go back and read Roman historians in the, the first couple of centuries, and they talk about this new group, this new sect. And one of the things they say over and over and over again is they love each other. And what was so strange was that love was transcending all of the cultural divisions that existed in the Roman Empire. There, there was love between Jews and Greeks. There was love between slave and free. There was love across the lines of economics, of race, of religion, of nationality, of language. And in all of these spaces, it did not make sense to the world around it. Right? And so what we have to consider then for us is if, if the love of Christians for each other is supposed to be an accelerant to the gospel, then a lack of love among Christians will throw water on the flames of the gospel. Anybody? I don't, I don't know if I should ask you to raise your hand or not. Let's go for it. All right. Um, anybody ever been part of an unhealthy, unloving Christian community. We won't say church. We'll just say community. So it could have been your small group. could have been your Christian school you went to growing up. All right. Just, you don't have to raise it high. You can just raise it low. Okay. Just, just right here. That's good. All right. Um, any of you ever participate in an unloving Christian community? Act in unloving ways? Yeah, that's what I thought. No, it was all their fault. Um, that's fine. That's fine. But here's what we got to understand. It, Anybody ever observed, how about that? Anybody ever observed an unloving Christian community? Okay, now we can raise these higher because we're not talking about anyone we know. We're just saying out there somewhere, I saw it once. Uh, when you saw that, was your first thought, you know what I want to do? I want to go hang out with those people. I've been looking for more drama in my life. I just, I don't have enough people who yell at me about stuff that I don't understand. I don't have enough people to fight with. So I'm just, I'm going to go over here and, and I'm going to say, hey, we love Jesus and I hate you. But, but we don't, we would never intentionally do it. And yet we do it. You know, we, and we excuse it of like, well, I'm not acting unloving. I'm just speaking the truth. I'm not acting unloving. They're just an idiot. I'm not acting unloving, but I'm not going to be a doormat. I'm not acting unloving, but you're not going to treat me that way. Right? And, and, and so what happens is instead of embracing the way of Christ, of we're going to turn the other cheek, we're going to go the other mile, we're going to pray for those who persecute us, we're going to bless and not curse, we're going to seek restoration and restitution. Instead of doing those things, we just adopt the attitudes of our culture of if you wrong me once, I'll wrong you twice. If you say two things bad about me, I'll prove you wrong and say three things bad about you. And when we do that, that lack of love among us just dumps water on the effectiveness of the gospel in our culture. And this isn't a new condition. So, so the love that Christians had for each other was one of the first accelerants for the growth of the church. Over and over again throughout the Roman Empire, for the first 100, 200, 300 years, the world around was looking and saying, there is something different there. When Constantine comes along in the fourth century, Christianity becomes culturally acceptable. Right? He, he sees the value, he sees the benefit of it, and Christians are removed from the persecuted classes in the Roman Empire. Now that brings a lot of good to the church, it brings a lot of health, a lot of stability, a lot of security, but what it also does is it opens the door for a new breed of Christian to become part of the church. Because when the church was persecuted, you weren't going to get into that unless you were sure of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for you. 
And because of the cost of following Jesus, you depended on the love of your fellow believers to help you. Because you might lose home, you might lose job, you might lose your life, and you're trusting them to care for those you leave behind. But as the church becomes culturally acceptable, there becomes a new form of Christianity where there are still those who love as Christ has loved them. They experience a transformational, sacrificial, never-ending, never giving up, and they're still experiencing it, they're sharing it with others, but there also comes in this, this new model of Christianity of just culturally acceptable religion. In culturally acceptable religion, you come and you participate in church life, you know the language, you know the behaviors, you enjoy some of the benefits but you don't have the wholesale commitment to the transforming power of Christ in your life. And so you come primarily for what you can get, asking what can God do for me, not to surrender and say, Lord, what do you want to do with me? And so what happens when we get in is, is in, in this cultural Christianity, we bring in the cultural norms and they begin to become the norms of the church. And this is where love is lacking. And this is where we decide, well, you know what? Let's turn the other cheek. That just doesn't work in the real world. I'd go the extra mile. Somebody might take advantage of me. Right? That, that if, if I have two and he has none, I should give him one. Ah, socialism. Uh, you know? And, and so we, we just kind of start to separate ourselves from all of these things. It's not new, but it does cause a problem for us. In fact, uh, the, the late 300s, early 400s, there was a church leader named John Chrysostom. And Chrysostom was a, a church leader. He was a pastor. He was a writer. And he noticed this and began to address it to his people. And what I want you to hear is how these words written centuries ago could have been written yesterday. He says, there is nothing else that causes the Greeks to stumble except that there is no love. We, we are the cause of their remaining in error. Their own doctrines have been long condemned, and in like manner they admire ours, but they are hindered by our mode of life. I mean, my goodness, I read that, and our first response is, yeah, there's a lot of messed up Christians. They should listen to this guy and get their stuff together. Right, and, and then a, a closer inspection is, I might be guilty of that too. There's definitely a lack of love in my language at times. There's a lack of charity in the way I respond to people who disagree with me. Right, and, and so in that moment, what is most important? Is it most important that I'm right and everyone knows it? Or is it most important that I remain loving and embracing, especially those who claim life-changing faith in Jesus Christ with me. He says there's nothing else that causes them to stumble except that there is no love. And it's not a matter of doctrine. He says they, they admire our doctrine. They understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They've examined their own way of life and they found it lacking. And the only obstacle that remains is they don't see that our lives match up with the truth that we proclaim. This is why Jesus tells us, by this will everyone know you are my disciples if you love one another, which means when Christians won't love each other well, we don't represent Christ well. It's not just about me. When Jesus gives us this command, it's not just about me saying, that seems like a better way to live. I think I should do it. It'll be better for me. 
But he's telling us, yes, it will be better for you, but it's also better for the gospel. It's also better for the kingdom. It's also better for everyone everywhere who doesn't know the transforming power of Jesus. And if we can begin to grasp this idea of love one another at all costs, at all, in all ways, at all times, it will shout to the world of the difference that Jesus makes. And just in case we don't get it. This comes back again and again and again. So 13 times, if you can throw that next one up for me, 13 times in the New Testament, we're given this command, love one another. John 13, 34, 13, 35, which we read this morning, John 15, 12, John 15, 17, Romans 12, 10, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, 1 Peter 1, 22, 1 John 3, 11, 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 4, 11, 1 John 4, 12, 2 John 5, love one another, 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 love one another. I don't know if that's 13, but we'll just stop and say it is. But here's what I know. Any time in my life I've ever gave the same command 13 times, you know what I'm serious about? The thing I just said. This is what Jesus is trying to help us understand. He says it in his own words. He says it through John. He says it through Peter. He says it through Paul. Again and again and again and again and again. Love one another. This is our job. It's our command. Now, what I, what I love about the scriptures is uh, as you continue reading through the New Testament, not only are you given this command 13 different times, but even more than that, dozens and dozens of times, you're given an explanation of what it actually looks like to love one another. Right, so, so it's not objective. It's not that I get to decide what it looks like for me to be loving and you get to decide what it looks like for you to be loving. There, there, is, there is the objective, so I said it's not objective, I meant it's not subjective, right? Uh, so there is an objective standard, and the objective standard is the love of Christ. The way he loved us is how we're going to love each other. So I want to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, okay? 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it to a guy named Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy is one of my favorite letters in all of the scriptures uh, because Timothy is a young pastor most scholars think he's in his 30s or 40s, um, and so I, I love that some people think he's in his 40s and they're still calling him a young pastor, because it means I got 12 good years ahead of me, right, uh, being a young pastor. And then um, I love it because Paul is just so full of practical advice. Now, Timothy is a young pastor. He is pastoring a church that is multi-generational. There are people in the church who are older than him. There are people in the church who are younger than him. He's pastoring a church that exists in a culture where uh, the gospel is under attack. And so he's being told by Paul, hey, you need to remember the gift that is in you from the laying on of hands. You've been called and equipped for this task. You need to stand firm for the truth of the gospel. You need to preach. You need to proclaim. You need to live in this way. He's telling him how to lead, how to pastor, how to be effective. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy... Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So as a young church leader, one of Timothy's jobs is to set an example for the flock, the congregation he leads, in what it looks like to love. 
Right, we've all been commanded, we, we saw it 13 times, love each other. And now Paul is making clear to Timothy, when you're in leadership, you don't move past the, the option or past the command to love, but instead you now receive a new responsibility. You not only have to love others, but you have to model for them what it looks like to love. And so for us as followers of Jesus, maybe it's important for us when we're considering leaders in the church, when we're considering who can do this, who can serve there, who can lead that, to not just see do they have the skills and do they have the desire, but to also ask do they have the love? Do they love Jesus? Do they love others? Is it visible in their life? Because Paul's telling us it's, it's not really up for debate. Leaders will be loving. And what does it say about the church and the state of the church in the world when we are surprised when leaders act in loving ways? When we're surprised and when, the, when they act in sacrificial ways. And so Paul is just giving him this very direct instruction of, hey, you're going to lead, but one of the things you're going to lead in is you're going to lead the way in love. Now, you can, you can almost hear Timothy's objection of, hey, that's great. What does that look like? Right? How does that play out? So again, I, I love these New Testament, these short little letters that the apostles write to churches and church leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul tells us what it looks like to love. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul gives us four categories of people with four corresponding relationships to help us understand, right? So, so uh, a couple things here. First of all, it's you know, men that are older than you, you're going to treat them, you're going to love them. Right? So, so maybe instead of reading that as treat them as fathers, let's understand that as love them as fathers. So men that are older than you, you're going to love them as you would your own father. Women that are older than you in the community, you're going to love them as you would your own mother. Men that are your age, again, he's speaking to Timothy, a man, you're going to love as you would your own brothers. And then women who are your age, younger than you, you're going to love as they were your own sisters and treat them with absolute purity. Now, now again, ladies, uh, Paul's writing to a man, okay, so, so that's kind of the, the angle that it comes from, but these categories are universal to male and female. So Paul's assuming a couple things. First of all, he's assuming that we understand healthy family relationships. He's not necessarily assuming that we have experienced healthy family relationships, but he's expecting that we understand what they are. So you might be here this morning and think, yeah, yeah, love an older man like my father. Let me tell you about that bum. He was never around. He was mean. He was abusive. He left us. He, whatever it is. I, I understand all that. I, I can sympathize with you there, but despite that pain and hurt, you still have an idea of what a healthy father-child relationship would look like. Same thing with a mother, same thing with a brother or sister. You might think I'm an only child. I don't get that, right? Uh, but you still understand. And so what, what Paul is trying to help Timothy understand is that in the body of Christ, you are to love each other. And one of the ways you're going to love each other is with a, a family-like love. And so this is how you're going to treat. And, and just think of the difference it makes. All right, so, so Paul tells us, first of all, we love to, when we love older men like our own father, what's that going to do? Well, what it's going to do is it's going to help us grow in respect and in patience with men who are older than us. 
We're going to be willing to speak truthfully and kindly to them. We're going to look for opportunities to seek their input and advice. We're going to respect where they have been and what they have experienced. We're not going to dismiss them of, oh, you're you're past age, you're past your prime. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. And at the other end, we're not going to just automatically defer to everything they want because they're older than us. Paul says you're going to love them like you would your own father. Then he says, older women, you're going to love like you would your own mother. Your desire is to see them thrive, to be content. You're going to be more gracious with differences of opinions. You're going to be more patient when they disagree with you. You're going to be more loving if truthful words need to be spoken. You're going to be quicker to act when they're in need. You're going to be less likely to be annoyed when there is friction or tension. right? And, and you're just going to adopt the mentality of, I'm going to treat her as I would expect. All right? And so this is, this is the thing. Like you can't even say, I would ex- I'm going to treat her like I would treat my own mother. We're going to say, I'm going to treat her like I would expect someone else to treat my mother. There's a difference, right? And all the moms in the room are like, yeah, that's right. Why don't you start treating me like you expect other people to treat me? Treat me like you do your friends' mothers. That's what I want, right? And, and so there, there's just, there's, there's a little, I get it, right? I get it. Um, and, and so what I, what I want us to understand here is Paul's just calling us to a higher form of love, to a higher view of others. Then he says you're going to treat younger men as brothers. What does that mean? It means when you're looking around at, at people who are younger than you. Again, now this is it's pretty revolutionary for Timothy because they, they live in a society that is very well defined by the generations. There are certain roles and there are certain responsibilities. And generally, the older you get, the more respected you are. And the younger you are, the less you are asked to contribute to the conversation. He's saying, no, you're going to love those younger guys like you would love your own brother. So what does that mean? It means you're going to know them, you're going to value them, you're not just going to tell them what to do, but you're going to invite them in, you're going to make a seat for them at the table, you're going to identify the gifts that God has placed in them, and you're going to call those out of them. You're not just going to spend all of your time delegating tasks, but you're actually going to call out the God-given potential that he's put inside of them. You're not going to be threatened by those coming behind you, but you're going to celebrate their successes and victories and look for opportunities to help them go farther and faster than you have. This is what it looks like to love someone else as you would your own brother. And then the the last one Paul gives to Timothy, he says, you're going to love younger women as sisters. And this this is only the second one that he adds a little extra to. He says, with absolute purity. Now, now, again, so ladies, here's where I need you to, to do the work in your head for me. Of, he's talking to Timothy about his relationship to the opposite sex who are his age or younger. So we're going to take all these same thoughts and you're going to apply them to men who are your age or younger. And what is Paul trying to explain to Timothy? He's trying to explain you don't have to be scared of these women. You don't have to keep them at an arm's length. You don't have to view every one of them as a temptress or a seductress, but you can love them as you would your own sister. But you are going to pay a little extra attention to make sure you are walking in absolute purity with them. Right? So, so there can be a temptation of, okay, well, hey, if we're all family, I, you know, I'll go to lunch with my sister. I'll do anything. We can go on a trip. So I guess I can do that with any other woman in the world. That's not what's being said here. Right? Paul's not advocating for you to lose your mind and then lose your marriage. He's saying, hey, just come on. Treat them like a sister, but with absolute purity. What I love here is this idea that Christ enabled love. 
Christ-enabled familial love, that family love, it's incompatible with the objectification and sexualization of others that inhibits love. So, so let's just make it a little bit uncomfortable for everyone, okay? One of the major problems we have in loving each other, not just we at Christian Chapel, not just we as Christians, but we as Americans, we as members of an over-sexualized Western civilization, is we have been so thoroughly corrupted by the idea that the only relationship that exists between a male and a female is a sexual relationship. And because of that, things get weird and things get awkward and things get uncomfortable and things get sinful. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is there is a way out of that and the way is not to completely reject the opposite sex and withdraw from relationship from everybody that is not part of your biological family. But the way forward is to be transformed by the love of Christ in you to embrace a familial bond between every other believer to view older men as your father, older women as your mothers, women your age and younger as your sisters, and men your age and younger as your brothers. And when you adopt that and you ask the Holy Spirit to bring that to mind over and over and over and over again, it means you can no longer look at another person as an object for your consumption, but instead as your sibling who has been made in the image of God and you have a responsibility to them. So, so let's just get real practical then. If pornography is one of the greatest plagues in the American church, how much does familial love change the way we fight against that temptation? Those are not just people. Those are intended to be your father and mother, your brother and sister. But we have bought into the lie of, no, 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 no. They are just objects. They are anonymous, and they don't matter. And by participating in the process, we're furthering the lie and the deception. And so when the Spirit comes to bring freedom, He's not just coming to bring freedom from behaviors. He's coming to bring freedom from this perverted mindset that allows men and women made in the image of God to be reduced to objects used for our consumption. And so we're just coming, we're saying, okay, Lord, that's, that's fine. Like, we'll talk about marriage next week, but we've got to get this right first. Healthy, loving relationships are the foundation for healthy, loving marriages. And so what we want to do then is we want to kind of move to this point where we can love each other with an appropriate, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying, Spirit-empowered, community-building love. This is what the Scriptures promise. It's what we see again and again and again and again. And it's a learning process. Right? This, this is where I want to get to. It's where I want you to get to. It's, I would love for Christian Chapel to be described as that's the place where they love each other. That's the place where, I mean, God is honored by their love for each other. Christ is glorified. The Spirit empowers them to do that. It builds the community up. But that kind of love requires relational investment, requires a surrender to the Scriptures, and requires the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And it's a process. And depending on your personal background, it might be a short process 
or it might be a long process. All right, so, so we'll, we'll wrap up with communion here in just a second. But um, when Angie and I came to Christian Chapel, we came back in 2005. We'd been married about four years. And in that four years, I had watched uh, some of my friends and some of my mentors just crash and burn in their personal lives, in their ministry lives, in their marriages. And there was this just really tragic string of sexual immorality, overstepping boundaries, and destroying families, destroying churches, destroying friendships, destroying lives. And so, so that was kind of my framework coming into ministry was no matter what, I'm not doing that. Right? I'm just not doing that. And so, so I had some guidelines in place um, that were good, that were healthy. Angie and I had talked through them. They were good. But then beyond those guidelines, there was this fear that lived in my heart of, I don't know how to interact with women who are around my age. So we come to Christian Chapel in 2005, and, and I'm not even fully aware of that. I thought I was doing okay and, uh, and trying to grow in that area, right, of, hey, we want to have boundaries, but we also want to be loving, and, and thought I was doing fine with it. Well, so fast forward, Angie and I, we've been here maybe uh, 10 years, so about five years ago. Um, one of our close friends, we were, I think we were just out to dinner or something, and the, the wife, just kind of out of the blue, said, uh, Chris, do you remember when you first came to Christian Chapel and you were super awkward around women your age? Like, no. It's never happened. And she's like, no, 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 for real. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, you would walk in a room at church. Like if you walked through the parlor and I was on the other side and we were the only two in the room, you would look at the ground and walk by. Like, well, I was probably picking up trash. Uh, she said, but if I would, like, if I would talk to you and Angie wasn't next to you, like you were physically uncomfortable and couldn't get out of that conversation fast enough. Like, well, Maybe you were the awkward one, right? I, who says it's my fault? And, and so I kind of protested. And she said, well, so I actually, I, I remember talking to two or three other women that we were all kind of in the same friend group. And they were all like, yeah, he is super awkward. <laughs> Just weird, won't make eye contact, won't hold a conversation, right? And some of these, like I was a youth pastor. Some of them were leaders who were serving with me. Now, now what was going on there? What was going on there was I had not fully embraced this idea of, Familial love actually creates safe space for healthy relationships and friendships with the opposite sex. Right? And, and so now still, if there's ever a question, I will always err on the side of awkward. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be awkward and married, okay? I'll just, <laughs> just put that out there. I'd rather be awkward and married all day long. She's no, she knows what she got, right? So uh, yeah, that's, that's fine with me, but we don't have to be. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live with this idea of like, man, everyone out there is out to ruin my marriage. Now, some people are. And that's where you can trust the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And Angie and I, we've had those talks over the years of like, hey, Jesus needs to work in that person's life, but he's got to do it from somewhere else because there is just something too weird, too aggressive going on there. So we're going to set that boundary. That's fine. But it's not every single person of the opposite sex is out to ruin your life and tear down your marriage. And as we grow in these authentic friendships, these authentic relationships, empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we become a part of a transformational community. Right, but we can't do it on our own. Jesus told us, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So if you, if you grab that communion cup as you came in this morning, if you'll just hold on to it there, the band's going to come back and they're going to lead us in a final song here in a moment. 
But if you'll stand with me, I want to lead us in a final prayer and, and give us an opportunity to do that together. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you, Lord. We thank you that what you have called us to do, you've also enabled us to do. That the command to love each other is, is really just an invitation to accept your love. So Jesus, as we receive communion in a moment, we remember your body and your blood that were broken and poured out for us. We remember that you have offered us complete and total forgiveness. You have offered us new life. Jesus, not just the restoration of our relationship with you, but the restoration of our relationship with others. You're inviting us into a family where we can love each other as fathers and mothers, as brothers and sisters, where you remove the stains and brokenness of our culture and bring us into a community of love where we are made whole and we help others find wholeness. And Lord, we thank you that as we walk in that way, our light shines in the darkness and you'll continue to draw more and more and more men and women and teenagers and children in. So Jesus, we come today, pray for those who don't have a relationship with you. Today, Lord, may they know your love and be transformed by it. May they receive the forgiveness that you offer to them and walk into the new life. And Lord, for those of us who've made that commitment, I pray today as we receive communion, that it would be a reminder to us that your love transforms us and every relationship we have. We take the bread with me. And the cup. As the band leads us in this final song, if you'd like someone to join with you in prayer, maybe to say yes to Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've got some broken, busted relationships that need the transforming love of Christ. Maybe you've got some physical, emotional, financial needs that you want someone to pray with you about. Whatever your need may be, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left, some of our pastors and prayer team members will be waiting to meet with you and pray with you in the prayer room. The rest of us, we're going to sing this final song together as our request to the Lord that he will come and make his love powerful and transformational in us again. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.